Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 2, Number 174, Continued, The Sermon of the Mount, The Beatitudes, Part 5, Encounter with the Magdalene. And here Jesus tells me that you must copy the vision dated 12th August 1944, from line 35 to the end, that is, to the departure of Mary Magdalene. Jesus is standing on a rock and is speaking to a large crowd. It is a mountainous place, a lonely hill between two valleys. The top of the hill is shaped like a yoke, or rather like a camel's hump, so that a few yards from the top there is a natural amphitheater where voices resound clearly, as in a well-built concert hall. The hill is all in flower. It must be summer. The crops down in the plain are beginning to ripen and are getting ready to be cut. The glacier of a high mountain in the north is shining in the sun. Directly below, to the east, the Sea of Galilee looks like a mirror broken into numberless fragments, each of which is a sapphire lit up by the sun. Its blue-gold twinkling is dazzling, and it reflects a few fluffy clouds in a very clear sky and the shadow of some swift sails. Beyond the lake of Genesaret, there is a vast extent of plain ground, which, because of a light mist near the earth, caused perhaps by evaporation of dew, in fact, it must be early morning, as the grass on the mountain is still has a few dewy diamonds glittering on its stems, looks like a continuation of the lake with an opal-like hue veined with green. Further back, there is a chain of mountains, the side of which is so bizarre as to give the impression of clouds sketched on a clear sky. Some of the people are sitting on the grass, some on large stones, some are standing. The apostolic college is not complete. I can see Peter and Andrew, John and James, and I can hear the other two being called Nathaniel and Philip. Then there is one who is and is not one of the group. Perhaps he is the last one who arrived. They call him Simon. The others are not there, unless they are among the crowds, and I cannot see them. The sermon has already started. I understand that it is the Sermon of the Mount. But the Beatitudes have already been proclaimed. I would say that the sermon is drawing towards the close, because Jesus says, Do that, and you will receive a great reward, because the Father who is in heaven is merciful to good people, and he knows how to give you one hundredfold to one. So I say to you, there is much excitement amongst the people who crowd round the path leading to the tableau. The people closest to Jesus turn their heads round. 
Everybody's attention is distracted. Jesus stops speaking and turns his eyes in the same direction as the others. He is serious and handsome in his dark blue tunic, his arms folded on his chest, while the first rays of the sun rising above the eastern peak of the hill shine on his head. Make room, you plebeians, shout the angry voice of a man. Make room for the beauty who is passing. And four dandies, smartly dressed, come forward, one of whom is certainly Roman, because he is wearing a Roman toga. They are carrying Mary of Magdala, still a great sinner, triumphantly on their hands, crossed to form a seat. And she smiles with her beautiful mouth, throwing back her head and her golden hair, which is all plates and curls held by precious hairpins, and a pale gold leaf strewn with pearls, which encircles the upper part of her forehead like a diadem, from which small light curls hanging down to veil her splendid eyes, made larger and more seductive by a refined makeup. The diadem appears behind her ears, under the mass of plates at the back of her snow-white, completely bare neck, and her nakedness extends much farther than her neck. Her shoulders are bare down to her shoulder blades, and her breast is even more so. Her dress is held on to her shoulders by two little gold chains. It is completely sleeveless. Her body is covered, so to say, by a veil, the only purpose of which is to protect her skin from sunburn. The dress is of a very light fabric, and when she throws herself back out of affection against one or the other of her lovers, she seems to be doing so completely nude. I am under the impression that the Roman is the one she prefers because she glances and smiles at him more frequently and rests her head on his shoulder. The desire of the goddess has been satisfied, says the Roman. Rome has acted as a mount for the new Venus. Over there, there is the Apollo that you wanted to see. Seduce him, therefore, but leave some crumbs of your charm also to us. Mary laughs, and with an agile, provoking movement, she jumps to the ground, showing her small feet shod in white sandals with golden buckles, as well as a good length of her leg. Then her dress covers her whole body. It is, in fact, a very wide one of snow-white wool, as thin as a veil, held tight at the waist, very low, near her sides, by a large belt made of supple gold bosses. And she stands on the green tableland, where there is vast amount of lilies on the gra- of the valley and wild narcissi, like a flower of flesh, and an impure flower, which has opened there by witchcraft. She is more beautiful than ever. Her tiny purple lips seem a carnation opening to the whiteness of her perfect set of teeth. Her face and body would satisfy the most exacting painter or sculptor, both because of her complexion and her figure. With her broad breast, her perfectly sized sides, her naturally supple, slender waist, as compared with her sides and breasts, she does look like a goddess, as the Roman said, a goddess sculptured in a light pinkish marble on the sides of which a fabric is draped and then hangs in the front in a mass of folds. Everything has been devised to please. Jesus stares at her, and she defiantly resists his look while she smiles and twists lightly as the Roman tickles her, running on her bare shoulders and breast, a lily picked among the grass. Mary, with affected indignation, lifts her veil, saying, "'Have respect for my innocence,' which causes the four to burst into a guffaw. Jesus continues staring at her, 
As soon as the noise of the laughter fades away, Jesus resumes speaking as if the apparition of the woman had kindled the flame of the sermon, which was losing intensity in its conclusion, and no longer looks at her. He looks instead at his audience, who seem embarrassed and scandalized at the event. Jesus says, I told you to be faithful to the law, to be humble and merciful, to love not only your brothers by the flesh, but also those who are brothers because they were born, like you, of man. I told you that forgiveness is better than hostility, that compassion is better than stubbornness. But now I tell you that you must not condemn unless you are free from that fault which you wish to condemn. Do not behave like the scribes and Pharisees, who are severe with everybody except themselves, who call impure what is exterior and can only contaminate what is exterior, and then they receive impurity in the very depths of their hearts. God does not say with the impure, because impurity corrupts what is the property of God, souls, and in particular the souls of children who are angels spread over the earth. Woe to those who tear off the wings with the cruelty of devilish beasts and throw those flowers of heaven into the mire by letting them taste the flavor of material things. Woe! It would be better if they died struck by thunderbolts rather than commit such sin. Woe to you, rich and fast-living people, because it is amongst you that the greatest impurity thrives, and idleness and money are its bed and pillow. You are now sated. The food of concupiscence reaches your throats and chokes you, but you will be hungry, and your hunger will be terrible, insatiable, and unappeasable forever and ever. You are now rich. How much good you could do with your wealth. Instead, you do so much harm both to yourselves and to other people, but you will experience a dreadful poverty on a day that will have no end. You laugh now. You think you are triumphing, but your tears will fill the ponds of Gehenna, and they will never cease. Where does adultery nestle? Where does the corruption of young girls hide? Who has two or three licentious beds in addition to his own matrimonial one on which he squanders his money and wastes the strength of a healthy body given to him by God that he may work for his family and not to wear himself out through filthy unions which place him below unclean beasts? You heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that he who looks at a woman lustfully, that she who wished to go with a man, has already committed adultery in his or her heart simply by that. There is no reason which can justify fornication, none. Neither the abandonment nor the repudiation of a husband, nor pity for the repudiated woman. You have one soul only. When it is joined to another body by a pact of faithfulness, it must not lie. Otherwise, the beautiful body for which you sin will go with you, O impure souls, into the inexhausted fire. Mutilate your body rather than kill it forever by damning it. Come to your moral senses, O rich men, verminous sinks of vice, so that you may not disgust heaven. Mary, who at the beginning listened with a face which was a dream of allurement and irony, sneering now and again, at the end of the sermon becomes livid with rage. She realizes that although Jesus does not look at her, he is speaking to her. She becomes more and more livid and rebellious, and at last can resist no longer. She spitefully envelops herself in her veil, and followed by the glances of the crowds, jeering at her, 
and by Jesus' voice, which pursues her, she runs down the slope of the mountain, leaving strips of her dress on the thistles and dog-rose bushes growing from the edges of the path, laughing out of anger and mockery. I see nothing else, but Jesus says, You will see more. May 29, 1945 Jesus resumes. You are indignant at what happened. For two days our shelter, which is well above the mud, has been upset by Satan's hiss. It is therefore no longer a shelter, and we will leave it, but I wish to conclude this code of the most perfect in this wide and bright horizon. God really appears here in the majesty of the Creator, and watching his marvels we can firmly believe that he, and not Satan, is the master. The evil one could not create even a blade of grass. But God can do everything. This should comfort us. But you are all already in the sun, and that is harmful. Spread out on the slopes where there is shade and it is cool. Have your meals if you wish so. I will speak to you again on the same subject. Many things have delayed us, but do not be sorry about it. You are with God here. The crowds shout, Yes, we are with you. And they move under the thickets spread on the eastern side so that the slope of the hill and the tree branches shelter them from the sun, which is already too warm. In the meantime, Jesus tells Peter to take the tent down. Are we really going away? Yes, we are. Because she came? Yes, but do not tell anybody, especially Simon Zealot. He would be upset because of Lazarus. I cannot allow the word of God to be mocked at by heathens. I see, I see. Well, there is another thing you must understand. Which, Master? That it is necessary to be silent in certain cases. Please do not forget. You are so dear, but you are also so impulsive as to burst out into biting criticism. I understand. You do not want for Lazarus and Simon, and for the others as well. Do you think there will be any today? Today, tomorrow, the day after, always. It will always be necessary to watch the rashness of my Simon of Jonah. Go now, and do what I told you. Peter goes away, calling his companions to help him. Judas Iscariot is pensive in a corner. Jesus calls him three times, but he does not hear. At last he turns around. Do you want me, master? He asks. Yes, go and take your food and help your companions. I'm not hungry, neither are you. Neither am I, but for different reasons. Are you upset, Judas? No, master, I'm tired. We are going now to the lake, and then to Dujea, Judas, to your mother's, as I promised you. Judas cheers up instantly. Are you really coming only with me? Of course. Love me, Judas. I would like my love to be such in you as to preserve you from all evil. Master, I am a man. I am not an angel. At times I feel tired. Is it a sin to feel the need of sleep? No, providing you sleep on my chest. Look over there how happy the people are and how beautiful the scenery is from here. Also, Judea must be lovely in springtime. Most beautiful, Master. But spring there, on the mountains, which are higher than here, is later. But there are beautiful flowers. The apple orchards are magnificent. Mine, which is looked after by my mother, is one of the most beautiful ones. And when she moves about in it with the doves following her to get some corn, believe me, it is a sight that soothes your heart. I believe you. 
If my mother is not too tired, I would like to take her to see yours. They would love each other because they are both good. Judas, drawn by this idea, cheers up, and forgetting that he was not hungry and he was tired, runs happily to his companions, and tall as he is, he undoes the topmost knots without any trouble and eats his bread and olives as a happy as a child. Jesus looks at him pitifully and then goes towards the apostles. Here is some bread, master, and an egg. I got that rich man over there, the one wearing the red tunic, to give it to me. I said to him, You listen, and you are hungry. He speaks and is exhausted. Give me one of your eggs. It will do him much more good than it would do you. Peter. No, Lord, you are as pale as a baby suckling from an empty breast, and you are becoming as thin as a fish after the mating season. Let me see to it. I do not want to have to reproach myself. I will put it under these warm ashes of the faggots I burnt, and you will eat it. Don't you know it is... How many? Most certainly weeks that we have been feeding on bread and olives and a little milk. Hmm? One could say that we are purging ourselves, and you eat less than everybody, and speak for everybody. Here is the egg, master. Take it while it's warm. It will do you good. Jesus obeys, and seeing that Peter is eating bread only, he asks, And what about you? Where are your olives? I need them for after. I promise them. To whom? To some children. But if they are not quiet until the end, I will eat the olives and give them stones. That is, blows. Very good indeed. Eh, I will never do that. But if we don't say so, I got so many blows myself. And if they had given me all the ones I deserved for all my pranks, I should have had ten times as many. But they do you good. I am like this because I got them. They all laugh at the apostles' sincerity. Master, I would like to remind you that today is Friday and that these people I do not know whether they will be able to get food in time for tomorrow or reach their homes, says Bartholomew. That's true, it is Friday, sort of several of them say. It does not matter. God will provide, but we will tell them. Jesus stands up and goes to his new place in the middle of the crowds spread in the thickets. First of all, I wish to remind you that this is Friday. I say that those who are afraid they cannot reach their homes in time and are not in a position to believe that God will provide food for his children tomorrow should go away at once so that they will not still be on the road at sunset. Of all the crowd there, only about 50 people get up. All the others stay where they are. Jesus smiles and begins to speak. You heard that in the old days it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Those who among you have heard me in other places know that I have spoken about that sin several times. Because, look, as far as I am concerned, it is a sin not for one person only, but for two or for three. I will make myself clear. An adulterer sins with regard to himself. He sins with regard to his accomplice and sins causing the betrayed wife or husband to sin. They may, in fact, be led to despair or to commit a crime. That with regard to the accomplished sin. But I will say more. I say, not only the accomplished sin, but the desire to accomplish it is already a sin. What is adultery? It is to crave for him who is not ours, or for her who is not ours. One begins to sin by wishing, continues by seduction, completes it by persuasion, crowns it by the deed. How does one begin? Generally with an impure glance. 
and that is connected with what I said before. An impure eye sees what is concealed from a pure eye, and through the eye, thirst enters the throat, hunger enters the body, and fever, the blood. A carnal thirst, hunger, fever. Delirium begins. If the person looked at is honest, the delirious looker-on is left alone on tender hooks, or will degenerate in revenge. If also the person looked at is dishonest, he will reply to the look, and the descent into sin begins. I therefore say to you, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her, because his thought has accomplished the deed of his desire. If your right eye should cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to be without one eye than to be thrown into the infernal darkness forever. And if your right hand should cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it will do you less harm to lose one part of you than to have your whole body go to hell. It is true that it is written that deformed people cannot serve God in the temple, but after this life the deformed by birth who are holy and those who are deformed out of virtue will become more beautiful than angels and will serve God, loving him in the happiness of heaven. It has also been said to you, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a writ of dismissal. But that is to be condemned, for it does not come from God. God said to Adam, This is the helpmate I made for you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and conquer it. And Adam, full of superior intelligence, because sin had not yet dimmed his reason, made perfect by God, exclaimed, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh from my flesh. This is to be called woman, that is, another eye, because this was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and joins himself to his wife, and the two become one body. And in an increased splendor of light, the eternal light approved smiling Adam's words, which became the first indelible law. Now, if owing to the ever-increasing hardness of man, the human lawgiver had to give a new law, if owing to the ever-increasing inconstancy of man, the lawgiver had to put a restraint and say, if you have dismissed her, you cannot take her back. That does not cancel the first genuine law, passed in the earthly paradise and approved by God. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for the case of fornication, exposes her to adultery. Because what will the divorced woman do in 90% of the cases? She will get married again. With what consequences? Oh, how much there is to be said about that. Do you not know that you can cause involuntary incest by such a system? How many tears are shed because of lust? Yes, lust. There is no other name for it. Be frank. Everything can be overcome when the spirit is righteous, but everything is an excuse to satisfy sensuality when the spirit is lustful. Woman's frigidity, dullness, ineptitude for housework, shrewish tongue, love for luxury, everything can be overcome. Also diseases and irascibility, if one loves in a holy way. But as after some time one does not love as on the first day, what is more than possible is considered impossible, and a poor woman is thrown onto the road and to perdition. He who rejects her commits adultery. He who marries her after the divorce commits adultery. Death only dissolves a marriage. Remember that. 
and if your choice is an unhappy one, bear the consequences as a cross, being both of you unhappy but holy, without making also the children unhappy, as they are innocent and suffer more because of such unfortunate situations. The love for your children should cause you to ponder one hundred times also in the case of death of your partner. Oh, I wish you could be satisfied with what you already have had and to which God said enough. I wish you, widows and widowers, realize that death is not an attenuation but an elevation to the perfections of parents. To be a mother in the place of a dead mother, to be a father in the place of a deceased father, to be two souls in one and receive the love for the children from the cold lips of the dying partner and say, go in peace, without worrying for those who were born of you. I will continue to love them on my own and on your behalf. I will love them twice and will be their father and mother, and they will not suffer the unhappiness of orphans, nor will they feel the inborn jealousy that the children of a remarried consort experience with regard to him or her who takes the sacred place of mother or father called by God to a new abode. My children, my sermon is drawing to its end, as the day is nearing its end while the sun is setting in the west. I want you to remember the words of this meeting on the mountain. Engrave them in your hearts. Read them over and over again, and very often. Let them be your everlasting guidance. And above all, be good to those who are weak. Do not judge that you may not be judged. Remember that the moment might come when God could remind you that is how you judged, so you knew that that, that was bad. You therefore committed a sin, knowing what you were doing. You must now pay for it. Charity is an absolution. Be charitable to everybody and in everything. If God gives you much assistance to keep you good, do not be proud of it, but endeavor to climb the full length of the ladder of perfection and give a hand to those who are tired or unaware and to those who are easily disappointed. Why do you observe so diligently the splinter in your brother's eye if first you do not go to the trouble of taking the plank out of your own eye? How dare you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, while the prank in your eye is blinding you? Son, do not be a hypocrite. Take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you will be able to take the splinter out of your brother's eye without ruining him. As you avoid being uncharitable, avoid also being imprudent. I said to you, give a hand to those who are tired or unaware and to those who are easily disappointed. But if it is charity to teach the ignorant, to encourage the tired, to give new wings to those whose old ones are broken, it is imprudence to reveal the eternal truths to those affected by Satanism, who take possession of them to pretend they are prophets, to insinuate themselves among simple people, to corrupt, lead astray, and sacrilegiously foul the things of God. Absolute respect to be able to speak to be silent, to ponder, to act, are the virtues of the true disciple in order to make proselytes and serve God. You are gifted with the faculty of reason, and if you are just, God will grant you all the light to make a better use of your reason. You must consider that the eternal truths are like pearls, and no one has ever seen pearls thrown in front of pigs, which prefer acorns and rank broth to precious pearls, which they could crush under their feet and then 
furious at being mocked at, they would turn against you and tear you to pieces. Do not give dogs what is holy. That is for the present and the future. I have told you much, my children. Listen to my words. He who listens to them and puts them into practice can be compared to a thoughtful man who, wishing to build a house, chose a rocky place. He certainly worked hard to lay the foundations. He had to work with pick and stone chisel. He got callous hands and broke his back, but he was able to put lime in the fissures of the rock and lay bricks one close to the other like the wall of a fortress, and the house was as solid as a mountain. The house was exposed to the inclemency of the weather and to downpours. The rain caused the rivers to overflow their banks. The winds whistled, the waves beat it, but the house resisted everything. Such is he who has a sound faith. Instead, he who listens superficially and does not strive to engrave my words in his heart, because he is aware that to do so he would have to work hard, suffer and extirpate too many things, is like a man who out of indolence and foolishness builds his house on sand. As soon as the inclement weather comes, the house quickly built quickly collapses, and the forlorn fool contemplates the rubble of the house and the ruin of his capital. And in that case... The ruin can be repaired with expenses and work, but if the edifice of the spirit crashes because it was badly built, there is no way to rebuild it. One cannot build in future life. Woe to those who present themselves there with rubble. I have finished. I am now going down towards the lake, and I bless you in the name of the one and triune God. May peace be with you. But the crowds shout, We are coming with you. Let us come. No one has words like yours. And they begin to follow Jesus, who goes down the opposite side from which he came up and which is in the direction of Capernaum. The descent is steeper but faster, and they soon reach the foot of the mountain on a green, flowery plain. And Jesus says, Enough for today. Tomorrow. And the vision ends.